Now on Documentary on News Talk, an exclusive documentary about Sean Moncrief's week in Ukraine. This is The Fixer. February 14th, 2023. Kiev Pasersky train station. When Russia attempted its full-scale invasion of Ukraine the year before, millions fled the country. But many travelled in the opposite direction, returning Ukrainians who wished to fight, politicians, diplomats, NGOs and about 7,000 foreign journalists. It's common practice for journalists to employ what's known as a fixer, a local person who knows the language in the neighbourhoods. They can advise on who to talk to and, most importantly for conflict areas, how to stay safe. Ours was Olga Lado. Olga led us to her car, a battered-looking Mazda that seemed to be illegally parked, but that quickly became irrelevant. Now, is it, what's that, that's over there, so that, does that not kind of for us? It's all, all over. Yeah. The air raid alert didn't seem to bother Olga. She wasn't running to a shelter, so we did what she did. We got in the car. Welcome, guys. <laughs> Myself and my producer, Ashling Moore, were not grizzled war reporters, so we were a little thrown by Olga's apparently casual reaction to the prospect of incoming rockets. But once we were installed in our hotel, and once Olga had ordered a massive sandwich, she explained what should have been obvious. This is a 21st century war. There are apps. So there is this app, and you can read in English, in case of something, live map. See, it, it's all apps about oh. war. <laughs> it's off. Siren off. Siren's off already? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's still here, but yeah. my, my Kyiv app said it. And does it tell you how long it went for? Like, how many minutes does it count? 23. <laughs> 23 minutes there was a siren on. Okay. So we usually don't know how many planes or ships, mm. but we know how many rockets. Okay. And if we know, for example, 80 rockets, it's bad. Yeah. It will be all over the Ukraine. And we will not catch all of them. If it's such amount, we know that it will be somewhere now heated. Mm. It's, if it's 10, it's not a big amount. We, we can cover all 10. It's not immediately. Yes. You have a long time. You sound so positive when you say that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, can it be um, unpositive? It's bad when I'm in her son and it's constantly under shelling. And I cannot predict. In, I, if I'm in Kiev and my app saying me, oh, in 20 minutes we waiting in Kiev rocket, that I at least I know what to do. <laughs> 
We didn't download that app. We didn't have to. Every phone in Ukraine automatically gets a notification. An American voice telling you to get to a shelter, that overconfidence is a weakness. And when the alert is over, you get this. Attention, the air alert is over. May the force be with you. Ukrainians do have a well-developed sense of humor, but it's more than just a joke. The voice is that of the Star Wars actor Mark Hamill. For the rest of our stay, we heard Luke Skywalker many times. Olga finished her sandwich, and after reminding us that she had a medical kit in her car in case any of us had a limb blown off, she suggested we go for a drive. You will tell me, paper. You will tell me, paper. Driving through Kyiv, you look for signs of war, and it's everywhere. Shattered buildings, sandbag monuments, concrete blocks and metal spikes ready to be dragged onto the roads. Yet it's a beautiful city. There's a high-rise area that has something of the energy of Manhattan and an old town nestling along the Dnipro River filled with winding streets and traditional wooden buildings. Olga was born and raised in this city. She wasn't always a fixer. Before the invasion, she used to work in marketing. But she seems reluctant to speak too much about herself, at first anyway. But we do learn one thing about her. She's not a great driver. Oh, sorry. Instead, in one of the many conversations we will have in her car, she talks about a year ago, when this all started. It was uh, night, uh, early morning, uh, five o'clock, and uh, um, there was some sound. I didn't understand what is it, because uh, in my life I didn't hear how a rocket sounds. And uh, uh, my boyfriend, uh, he... Uh, he was in, in uh, the military from 2014 and in he just sit in bed and said, OK, the war is started. Uh, collect your clothes, Olga. He contacts her when he can, but Olga hasn't seen her boyfriend since that day. When I was reading about Second World War, I was always thinking, God, if something will be like this with me, the most important thing is to run away, to be evacuated. Uh, not to be captured because you can you cannot if you already in the trap you cannot do anything that's all that's all you just can be in a gas like uh, gas camp like it was with Germans so I remember it was my lesson my personal lesson from uh, from the books um, why people decided to stay it's their choice it's their choice. Yes. Yes. The, 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 the one thing you should know when um, battlefield inside of your city or near, run. Yeah. Otherwise, uh, you cannot judge anyone. Why you why you stay there? But I suppose at the time people didn't know whether it was more dangerous to try and hide in their home or to try to leave. First days, yeah, yeah, for sure. And people from Kiev, many people from Kiev, run away, guys, to Irpin, Bucha, and uh, to oh. all this, because people thought yes. that it will be more uh, safety. <laughs> no one uh, was waiting uh, such a huge, like, full-scale invasion mm. in 21st century. 
it was totally surprise, totally for everyone. Oh, I think yeah, the world was surprised because until the last minute they didn't think he was gonna do it. I didn't believe. Uh, I I think we we were understanding what's happening all the year because it's still uh, it's. I mean, I'm smiling, but it's not funny. Uh, it's still surprising that that it's in reality, that it's with my city, with my country, with my people. Olga thought she would run away, yet she doesn't explain why she didn't. But her shock, everyone's shock, is carved into every face we see. Later on, we get to talk to Artem Denisov, who runs a support centre for military veterans. But this experience will be uh, in our country, like forever, because it, it's something, uh, a big shock experience for the whole country and for the like, big percentage of the population who uh, like, uh, participate in this war in different uh, roles. So not everybody fighting on the front line, not everybody was involved in the war like actively, but the war involved everybody in different roles. We will have a lot of people uh, with the combat experience. We will have a lot of people with the experience of waiting those people who have been on the front line. I mean about spouses and families and we have a lot of people, unfortunately, who got injured, uh, who um, lost their limbs, who have different traumas. And unfortunately, but it's, uh, it's a new norm for Ukraine. Yeah. Right now, the media also, uh, they talk about the PTSD, but itself, the PTSD, it will be like about uh, 20, 30, maybe 40%, but not the whole population. And nobody knows how much it will be, uh, how much it will influence on uh, the population. But not the only. Uh, we will have the not only the PTSD from that. We will have the stress disorder. We will have the anxiety. We will have a lot of things uh, different from that. Back in the car, Olga is pulling in. Are you allowed to do this? <laughs> she wants to show us a museum, the only museum that's open in Kiev. It displays items from the war, rockets, tattered pieces of uniform, maps and badges. In the basement, a bomb shelter from Bucha has been recreated. 70 people spent 37 days there, in almost complete darkness. Yet when we get out, we're distracted by a monument, this one far too massive to be protected by sandbags. A woman with her arms outstretched looks over the city, she holds a sword and a shield and shines in the winter sun. To a neutral, uninformed observer, it's rather magnificent. But Olga hates it. I don't like this statue and um, it's not the symbol of my city at all. I want to see and listen this. Despite the fact it's huge, it's almost the first you see when you, especially when you coming from the left bank of the city, uh, left bank of Dnipro, when you coming, you see this huge monument. It's even higher than uh, a monument in America. Yeah, uh, 
but uh, still it's monument of Soviet Union. Soviet Union put this. The style, uh, there is even sign of Soviet Union uh, on her left hand. For me this monument is the um, uh, monument of Soviet Union and uh, their aggression uh, to our people. So uh, we need to, how to say, to think uh, how what to do with, with this, this now yes. and uh, how to speak about this monument now. Do now. people want to tear it down maybe? No, of course, but uh, it should be a big campaign uh, to even to us, to local people. The whole style, it's connecting with Russia, with Soviet Union and their aggression. Because Russia is just continuing of Soviet Union. The Motherland Monument is far from the only example of this. Downtown Kyiv is filled with reminders of Russia's influence on Ukraine. For younger Ukrainians, they are an affront, but also a reminder of the psychological effect this Russian influence has had. In 1933, unrealistic grain quotas set by the Soviet Union triggered a famine in Ukraine. They call it the Holodomor. Between 8 and 12 million people died. Olga's grandmother lived through it. Uh, but despite this fact, all her life, uh, she was saying that uh, Soviet Union is good, despite the fact Soviet Union took all food from her mom's family. And her mom's only one who stayed survive because she was the smallest one and the whole family gave all the food for her. She grew up in, uh, let's say, in lie actually, in propaganda of that Soviet Union propaganda. They are very good in in a hip coffee shop called Blur, we meet a historian named Vodolin Miriaf, and he runs through the history of that propaganda and of the Russification of Ukraine, renaming streets, towns and cities, suppressing the Ukrainian language, arresting Ukrainian intellectuals. And we notice he keeps using the phrase, the Russian people. So I ask the obvious question. Do you think it is the Russian people or just the regime in Moscow? It's Russian people. Absolutely majority of Russian people do not perceive Ukraine like independent country. Sometimes Europe, by mistake, they name that regime is uh, responsible. But regime, it is like it is because of people who uh, bring this uh, regime, who make this regime, who don't respect international law and they don't... Uh, see the imperialist, they don't see Ukraine like an independent country. This isn't the only time we encounter this opinion. We've already heard it from Olga and it arises again in, of all places, a comedy club. We want to reflect how Kievans are attempting to lead normal lives, or as normal as they can manage. So we visit the House of Actor, a former synagogue that's now a cultural centre. The MC on the night is Max Vyshensky. He tells us that it's pretty standard for Ukrainian comics to make jokes about Putin and the Russian soldiers, but also about ordinary Russians, because, he says, they hate us. Why do you think all Russian people hate Ukrainians? Because uh, I have many uh, people who live uh, there, 
live in Russian. Uh, it's my friends, relatives of my friends, relatives of uh, many stand-up comedians uh, who uh, will uh, take a part in these concerts today. And my telephone and uh, read some message from these people who live there. And they talk that we... Uh, must uh, hands uh, up and uh, yes and surrender. Yeah, uh, uh, it's terrible position. Uh, Russian propaganda said uh, them that Ukrainian is bad people. Ukrainians is, and uh, I have many many uh, examples uh, about that. What I talk and think it if Ukraine make independent when Russia will not survive. <laughs> This is, for them, a zero-sum game. If Russia continues in its current form, Ukraine will be extinguished. And in all the time we spent there, we didn't meet one person who used the phrase, if we win the war. It was always, when we win the war. Not one person. Anything else was unthinkable. Ashling and I walk back to the hotel. There's already been a lot to absorb. We've encountered trauma, anger, hatred and rock-hard self-belief and we can't help but wonder if this is what keeps Olga going, what keeps everyone going. It's a disconcerting mixture that could, in time, metastasize into something very dark. The next day, things become more clear and more complicated. We've seen the centre of Kyiv and now we're travelling further out. But there's a brief delay. Olga has been pulled over by the police for making an illegal turn. I was not right, it's okay. Okay, well, you get a fine now or something? Oh, good. Yeah. She doesn't seem that happy about it. Today we're travelling to the northwestern edge of the city. What happened in the Kievan suburb of Bucha has been much reported on. And Ukrainians joked that it got the bulk of international media attention because it was the easiest to pronounce. So we're not going there. Instead, we're headed to Irpin and Borodjanka, which suffered the same fate. For six weeks, people were trapped in their homes. Uh, there was no any supplies. Uh, there was no connection with these people. We didn't know what's happening here. Light, gas, electricity, nothing. Just huge tragedy on the streets every day and um, huge risk for, for civilians stay here and being here because every day how they want Russians can come and start uh, do bad things and how locals explained me Borodyanka for them it was like a game they just came from villages from time to time sometimes every day and just shoot it uh, wherever they want it for them it was like a game they come to Borodyanka to shoot Olga knows these areas well six days after the Russian forces were repelled and once Ukrainian bodies were collected from the streets journalists were allowed in Olga spent days interviewing witnesses and taking photographs, all of which she posted on an Instagram account. But it was still risky. Mines were everywhere. They hide, they hide explosions, and uh, they hide in such places where you don't. In in the washing machine, in in flats, between uh, children, uh, toys, 
uh, it was in house of uh, my friends and accidentally father of uh, of family noticed this because Russians were standing in their house and they put it when they run away is that a crack in your windscreen? it's not my uh, I bought this car with this oh. in our conversations we're slipping easily now between the horrific, the mundane and the surreal. Up ahead, a billboard. That seems to be a familiar face. It looks awfully like Boris Johnson, other than like his, yeah. his hair is Ah, oh, yeah, 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 right. Exit the roundabout. Yeah, it says it, Boris Johnson. Yeah. <laughs> That's mad. What does uh, the rest of the poster say? It's a uh, world of brave people. <laughs> <laughs> understand people here receiving his a symbol of help. Yeah. While the centre of Kiev is largely intact, Erpin is the opposite. We drive slowly through a series of residential streets where every house is strafed with bullet holes and burn marks. Windows are blown out. Most seem uninhabited. There are few people here. The uh, Russians going uh, through private houses, uh, through flats in <coughs> in buildings, and um, if uh, there was no uh, people inside, they took off uh, the doors. It was for them a sign that there is no one inside. And uh, civilians, local peoples, explained me in the interviews that uh, they were impressed about our doors because they have not seen such doors. Uh, you know that the uh, Russian army come from, uh, uh, many of them come from uh, poor. Uh, we don't think that we are uh, rich, uh, but and they feeling about us like we are rich. Mm. Uh, they stole, uh, they stole uh, microwaves, uh, microwave, yeah. microwaves. For them, it's it was, and it. I would not believe if I will not uh, speak with uh, my people on the streets uh, at the beginning. And it's not one case, two case. It's many people explained that they were surprised about how we live, and they were angry on this that you are living here like kings. Our first stop is the only remaining school in Arpine. The two others were destroyed. This school's normal pupil complement was about 600. Now it's two and a half thousand. They show us the bomb shelter, then we go upstairs to watch the children celebrate Unity Day. They wave Ukrainian flags along to patriotic songs. Olga watches this, and tears run down her face. We head towards a centre for internally displaced people, past even more destroyed houses. Many of them have signs of fire outside their front doors. There was no electricity, gas and so on, so on, so people turn right, uh, making turn um, right. fire just uh, in the entrance of the building. Mm. They cook uh, food. And that man, he was just uh, making fire to cook and they shoot him. On the fiancé, it's the world body. There is body there. So I think people was uh, writing where they... Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's on the... 
it's an Ukrainian body. Also, it was prohibited to um, uh, to funeral to to take people to the ground. Uh, that our, our our the yeah Russians. Uh, prohibited the, this and sometimes people were just uh, laying on the ground and uh, 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 dogs started to eat it and civilians cannot do anything because uh, they can be shot at. And uh, when I was uh, uh, at the beginning uh, I saw how people digging uh, from their window, uh, digging the grave of uh, neighbor who've been shot, because Russians uh, didn't give possibility to burn him to burn him somewhere in normal place. Mm-hmm. So people were forced to dig in uh, children uh, places where children playing, or n- exactly near the windows, just in front of the windows, because. Uh, it was impossible to be on the street in general, so they were forced to dig very quickly and hide the bodies of their neighbors, basically. There are more people outside here, particularly women, sweeping the streets. And from both sides of the streets, we see how people cleaning, cleaning, uh, very fast civilians, wanted to clean all this Russian war, Russian peace, so-called. So that's why uh, you don't, you cannot see so much evidence on the street because Mm. people wanted to clean it very, very Very quickly. To us, the area still looks destroyed, but the function of this is probably psychological as much as practical. It's something people can do something they can control, an attempt to sweep away trauma. Inside this IDP centre are all the signs of domestic life, kids playing, laundry drying on rails. There are a lot of cats, one of which, we're told, survived a house explosion but lost her tail. They insist on giving us tea. Like the sweeping women outside, Shizhenko Vita helps clean up the local parks, she used to live nearby, but her street was destroyed. I ask her how long she thinks she'll be living here for. We don't know what will be with us and when, uh, because every family uh, uh, tries to resolve their problems uh, by their own. Uh, there is no money for this uh, in our state uh, now. And uh, some people asking donors, some people uh, asking friends to help, that's all. Uh, we, we we don't know what will be. Yeah, is it difficult to stay happy when you don't know what the future holds? Some answers don't need translation. On now to Borodjanka. 
We park in the centre, beside a building that has the dubious honour of being one of the most photographed in Ukraine. A row of apartment buildings pockmarked with rocket holes. The centre section completely collapsed. Very much creepy was uh, kids on the streets uh, just playing uh, in the middle of all of this. It was a creepy picture. People were uh, in bomb shelter there and uh, we couldn't help that people because uh, Ukrainians haven't been here and they just uh, died there. So the bombs, they weren't protected by the bomb shelter? No, because it was like this. Yes. It was all houses. Someone, maybe they, they they must stay alive. But there was no one who uh, took uh, all this uh, rubble. Oh, so they were buried in the, yes, in the yes, shelter. Yes, okay. yes, yes. It's an odd urge to want to walk up to it, to peer into the remains of a basement where people were left to die. And it's the details that are the most striking. Burnt furniture, a knife and fork, the remains of a child's doll. But across the road, because life has no option but to go on, there's a market. And beyond that, beside more shattered buildings, a queue is forming. The daily delivery of humanitarian aid. We meet a woman called Lena. She's wearing makeup and a smart coat. The same clothes, she tells us, she was wearing when she fled her home the year before. She had lived in the destroyed apartment building we just visited. My brothers who are living uh, not so far away from here, uh, they start to call me uh, that uh, please be, please run away, please run away. Of course, of course, I uh, I didn't want to be evacuated, but uh, they forced me, and um, uh, I said okay. And in the night at 11 o'clock, I grab uh, some uh, clothes and run uh, to private house to my brother who is living here near, and my son was staying in the ho- in 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 uh, my 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 flat. So uh, neighbors uh, also stayed, and uh, later they uh, they were thinking that it was bad decision to stay. And uh, once in the night, in the nearest day, I received call in two o'clock in night calls from my neighbors. They told me, uh, "Where are you, son? Uh, because our house is burning." Tell him to run. She called to his to her son, and uh, in in the night, uh, everything was good. He came, uh, and they were all together in that private house of brother. In the morning, I told my son, uh, "Go." and grab uh, at least money that I hidden because uh, she was ru- when she was running she put uh, she hide money because she thought they will come back and the son calling then around eight o'clock uh, in the morning mom there is no our house anymore and uh, it's uh, she feels very pity because neighbors who called to save her son uh, they died 
I'm very sorry for your loss. Мені дуже шкода чути про ваших сусідів. I have dreams about them. Olga gives Lena a hug, and then Lena walks off, her back straight. While she spoke with us, she didn't shed a tear. I don't know how she does it. I don't know how Olga does it, hearing these stories, telling these stories. After we'd returned from Ukraine, it took Ashling and I weeks to metabolize everything we'd experienced. But right then, we seemed to be reacting minute to minute. I saw boots with uh, parts of legs, Russian legs. As she tells us this, we pass another poster of Boris Johnson. Sharing these details obviously isn't easy for Olga, yet she also seems to have a need to stress the positive. How nice, uh, how nicely that old lady uh, who refused to be evacuated, how, uh, uh, how she evacuated actually yeah. Yeah. from which house and yeah. now she's able to speak with us. <clears throat> It's incredible. It's a miracle. And is a miracle. Yeah, and I... Because today, because people told us so many stories, but sometimes I just felt like a vampire uh, going around sucking people's stories out. But then other times it felt like people felt better because they really need to tell their story and it's like therapy or something. Uh, It's first of all, but second, don't be... uh, Don't feel uh, guilty for this you working in a very important, highly important job, giving voices to Ukrainian stories. You are, again, you are in history now. You will remember these moments, these four days, all your life. Yeah. These four days will be in books. Yeah, that's true. You don't realizing this, you will realize it also yeah. uh, after that. And we don't know what will be in future. She's right, of course, but it's also the first time we've heard her express any doubt. Over the next few days, we crisscross the city. Olga gets a parking ticket. We talk to a group that investigates war crimes, to a man who smuggled supplies into Irpin, to more internally displaced people. We visit the zoo, a metro station used as a bomb shelter and a local jazz performance. Every so often, the alarm sounds. Olga checks her app and says we're okay. The bombs are falling hundreds of kilometers away. Attention. Luke Skywalker tells us over. all as well. May the force be with you. And in the car, we keep chatting. Sometimes it's the trivial. Do you have McDonald's in Ireland? Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. And how it's how people with this? Yeah, kids and drunk people. 
that's basically what you've got. Uh, kids like it during the day. Drunk people go there like at you know eleven o'clock at night. <laughs> so similar, everything so similar. Yeah. I mean, of course, if you are drunk, you are going to McDonald's. Yeah. Or if actually McDonald's is very good if you've got a hangover as well. Yes. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. Correct. But we also start to learn more about Alga and why she stayed behind in Kiev, except she didn't. We had assumed she had. Perhaps she wanted us to learn more about the war before she shared her story, because the invasion forced her to make a terrible decision. So, I grabbed my backpack. I, it was empty streets on in Kiev. There was no cars. Also, uh, I saw one car is going empty street, but one car was going, and I hitchhiked and asked to left. bring me at least to subway or maybe some direction when I can get to the train station and uh, that kind man uh, because it was dangerous everything uh, empty on the street uh, he told me that he will bring me to the train station directly and he really bring me the whole train station was full of people and especially foreigners uh, they were very afraid and um, We can understand this. It's not their country. They don't understand language. They don't. Uh, it's students from different countries mm. who study yeah. here, yeah. and uh, they were mm, not very polite. They pushing. Uh, yes. Okay, they were panicking. Uh, they yeah. panicking. Yeah. Olga's yeah. parents had refused to evacuate, but because the Ukrainian economy had collapsed overnight, they had no income. Olga had to make money, but to do that, she had to leave them behind. And then we were in train. Train was full, uh, you know, like no, no, no sheep. How in Bible yeah. with animals, no, with, uh, yes. um, yeah. with, uh, with, with animals, with people. Mm. It was like this. And my friend from Lviv, he uh, tell me uh, you can stay in Lviv just to sleep, have a rest. It was nice idea. I I decided before I will go to Poland. I I really will stay to sleep uh, in Lviv. Lviv is close to the Polish border, but when Olga arrived there, the city had transformed. Overnight, it became a hub for refugees and the distribution of foreign aid. My friend who invited me, we noticed how this house uh, was filling with people, and it was clear that it will be humanitarian problem now in Lviv, that there is a huge wave of refugees, people who running, and uh, we started to call different businesses who has offices, who has um, some accommodation, and uh, we're collecting these keys from offices, keys from flats, because many people were running uh, to Europe, mm. and they give us, it was friends of friends, they yeah. give us keys of their flats, to provide the flats for refugees to stay, to have a break. We split uh, responsibilities. Some people in this house uh, where I live, in this private house, some were responsible for drivers, some were, someone was responsible for accommodation, someone was responsible, like me, for products, collecting resources and um, collecting this in our warehouse in Lviv. Like the women sweeping the streets in Arpine, Alga had found a purpose. She could be useful, 
and in turn, that helped her deal with the enormity of what was happening around her. So she decided not to travel to Poland, but she still had to make money. My parents refused to be evacuated. I was thinking about how I, was, how I, uh, how I will be able to help my family, because at that moment uh, I, have, uh, I had disabled grandmother, and uh, my mother, my mother, she's uh, she's two-time cancer survivor. She needs pills. Of course, uh, there was no pills, uh, supplies, uh, and medical supplies. The same like food supplies, anything. Uh, and I, the only one I was thinking, I don't have my kids, but I have three uh, older people. One, two-time cancer survivor. Uh, it's my mom. My father was uh, taking care about disabled grandmother, and I was thinking how I will be able to help my family to eat without uh, work. Where I find, where I will find work in view, it was empty streets. I just go on empty streets and saw foreigners and ask. I can help you. I am a local. I can work with you. Some part of my jobs I received like this. Leaving her family behind in order to help them can't have been easy. She didn't accept it either. Repeatedly, she begged them to evacuate. I, I called my mom. I said, no, it's enough from me. I'm coming to Kiev and I'm taking you. Uh, you're going with me. You are, we are, I evacuate you. And she was crying. I don't want. Uh, and I said, mom, you putting me in dangerous I will be I myself I will come and pick up you uh, because you're refusing to be evacuated and it's becoming too dangerous so I'm coming and taking you uh, and dad to be evacuated (laughs) but she was crying all day and uh, uh, on the next day uh, key region was liberated so she's lucky (laughs) so she's (laughs) so instead Olga returned to Kiev. Mothers are always right. You must know that. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's one of those stories she can laugh about now. But of course, it could have gone a completely different way. And again, we wonder how she deals with this. She says that when this is over, when they win the war, that she wants to travel with her boyfriend. But when the bombs stop dropping and the adrenaline stops pumping, what kind of psychic damage will Olga have to confront? So in our final trip in the car, back to Kiev Pazazersky train station, we ask her. Now, the amount of death and the amount of tragedy we're facing, uh, such big that if we will cry every moment and we will affect it to, to close to the heart, uh, we will not be able to go, uh, to continue our fight. You cannot, uh, you cannot realize the situation while you are in the situation. Uh, so, um, how how shock was uh, at the beginning? I re- realized only after that because for me it seems like uh, with uh, normal mood I go, to, uh, I go, evacu- I evacuate to Lviv, but then I try to um, remember how it was. And I feel that it was actually pure shock. Maybe not so bad like uh, other people. I was not crying. It was not bad mood. Yes, uh, it was task to find a job. It was task how to save parents. But um, I 
I, I can work, I can see bodies of people, I can see war crimes, it doesn't affect me a lot. Um, not every person can do this job, you know? Do you think though, later on, in two years when the war is over, you might feel it then? Uh, even now, I, I'm much more um, uh, touchy, mm -hmm. sensitive yeah. than I was here before, because the whole year I was more like a robot. Olga parks illegally again. We take out our bags, and because she's a good fixer, she brings us into the station and shows us where to sit. A vaulted, wood-panelled waiting room that to me looks filmic, but to Olga is another ugly Soviet construction. We hug, and off she goes. Tomorrow she has a Norwegian TV crew to look after. Outside, a gentle snow starts to fall. We mount the train and start to move west, towards safety. And I think of Olga crying when we watched the school kids, of how she hugged the woman on the food line, and of one other thing she told us. I saw only inspiring things. My heart didn't take uh, close some uh, bad things, but my heart took close inspiring things. Maybe it's some natural copy strategy of mine, but I'm thankful to my mind that <laughs> it, it, yeah. it, it chose such copy strategy. Olga showed us Ukraine through her eyes. We saw anger and fear, shock and deep hatred. But we also saw love. The Fixer was presented by Sean Moncrief, produced by Ashling Moore, with additional audio production from Lachlan Hart. For more on Documentary on News Talk, visit Newstalk.com.